This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So there's a tremendous amount of excitement about the microbiome at the moment, in part due to the $173 million NIH Human Microbiome Project, where the results catapulted from the pages of Science and Nature to the cover of Scientific American to the cover of The Economist in record time and into public consciousness. Part of the excitement is that we're finding, due to the uh, decline in cost in DNA sequencing, over a million-fold in the last 15 years, the microbes do all kinds of things that we never suspected. For example, they determine how attractive we are to mosquitoes. So you're not crazy when you go camping. You might really be 10 times as attractive to mosquitoes as the person you're camping with. They determine how we respond to drugs. And uh, they even des- uh, determine traits like, uh, like obesity and uh, a wide range of other diseases have subsequently been linked to the microbiome. So a lot of what we're trying to do at the moment is understanding how can we map our microbes across our bodies or across our planet. And uh, the intuition here is that as you go to different parts of the world, you see different species in different locations that immediately identify a scene that's coming from one place or another or another. So with microbes, it's more or less the same, but we have the problem that they basically look the same under a microscope, unlike these charismatic megafauna. So instead, what we do is we tend to their DNA to understand them. And in the Human Microbiome Project, together with a team of about 400 researchers across the country, we collected about 4.5 trillion A's, T's, G's, and C's. But then the problem with the data is it looks like this. Uh, so, um, so this is the first 0.1% of the first file. There's another 17,000 of these. And it's pretty hard to tell who lives where in the environment from that, right? So what we do is we use computational techniques to develop these kinds of abstract maps where each point summarizes all of the complexity in a given microbial community, uh, summed up by its DNA, and two points close together are more similar in terms of the evolutionary history of their microbes. Uh, Two that are further apart are more dissimilar in their microbial evolutionary history. And so when we do this, we see automatically emerging these major patterns where the mouth is very different from the skin and the vaginal microbiomes, and the fecal microbiome down the bottom there is distinct yet again. And so, um, and so what this implies is that two samples from the same person can be real different in terms of the microbes. So here I'm highlighting one oral sample and one fecal sample from the, pers- from the first person in the Human Microbiome Project. So these are pretty different on this map, but we only really understood this when we cross-referenced the data to the Earth Microbiome Project, where we can go out into different physical environments and ask what two samples are as different from each other as uh, the uh, the mouth and the gut of this one person. And so if we compare your mouth to being kind of like a coral reef, you have these complex mineralized structures uh, covered with biofilms that maybe your dentist pesters you about, uh, then the microbes, uh, the microbes in the gut are as far away from the microbes in the mouth as the microbes in this reef are from the microbes in this prairie in Kansas, right? So essentially non-overlapping communities. And what that means is that a few feet along the length of your GI tract can make as much difference to your microbes as hundreds of miles across the Earth's surface. And what I'll show you is that the skin, which is like yet another uh, microbial continent, has tremendous diversity as well, both within you as an individual and between different people. So this might lead you to wonder how stable our microbiome is, at least if we're healthy. And my partner, Amanda, who's, uh, I've got to admit, has put up with a lot in the name of microbiome research, and I uh, address this question by sampling our own microbiomes every single day for a period of six months. So when I project that into a slightly simpler version of this data frame, basically the dark points on this are me, uh, the, light points, uh, the, the light points are here. 
And what you can see when I start this going, so each frame in this animation is one day as we move through this landscape of microbiomes defined by different people. And you can see immediately how the skin in blue is much more variable even within one person than the other sites. The mouth in green is the most constant, and then the gut down at the bottom uh, is, uh, is intermediate between the two. And you can also see how we retain our separate microbial identities through this six-month period. And that's especially remarkable when you consider we live together and have all kinds of opportunities to exchange microbes with each other. Uh, I'll just rotate this around so you can see how we retain those separate microbial identities there. So all of this might lead you to wonder, uh, where, where do we get these unique, personally, uh, personally unique microbes from? And uh, if you have dogs or kids, as I do, you probably have some dark suspicions about that, um, all, 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 all of which are true, by the way. So it turns out I can actually match you up to your dog by the microbes you share. Um, now, that's not, to say that, uh, that's not to say that your microbes are exactly the same as the dogs. So here, uh, what we can see um, on, on a map that includes both humans and dogs is that at every site of the body, whether it's the tongue, the stool, or the skin, um, the dog and the human are separate from one another. And again, you can see that the dog's skin is very variable, just like the human skin is. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, uh, our first microbes depend tremendously on how we're born. And so uh, this is what we did with Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello, now at NYU, uh, looking at microbes of mothers an hour before they gave birth, and then of their babies within 20 minutes of birth. And what you can see in red is the vaginal uh, communities from the mothers. And then in pink, we have microbes from all over the bodies, including the skin and including the gut of babies 20 minutes after they were born. Whereas in contrast, in dark blue, we have all the skin communities from the mothers. And in light blue, we have all the habitats from all over the body of babies delivered by C-section. So uh, what you can see is that if you're delivered by C-section, you're denied the vaginal microbes you would ordinarily have as you pass through the, uh, the birth canal. And we think that the lack of that co-evolved microbial community may explain some of the differences in health between vaginally delivered and C-section babies. Of course, the most likely outcome if you have a kid by C-section is that your kid will be fine, but there are somewhat higher risks of all kinds of diseases, including atopic dermatitis, uh, food allergies, um, and even obesity, all of which have now been linked to the microbiome. So, um, so, so again with Maria Gloria, uh, we're doing this trial at the moment to try to figure out can you restore the microbial community to kids delivered by C-section. And so what we're doing here is essentially collecting the vaginal microbes from others and then delivering them to the babies. And this is very preliminary data at this point, but we are able to show partial restoration of the microbial community, both in the, uh, both in the gut and in the skin, uh, by applying this procedure. Uh, and, um, and so we're uh, hoping to develop this into a large enough study to develop clinical recommendations based on this microbial restoration. So you might be wondering, well, what happens after that? And what I'm going to show you now is the trajectory of uh, one child. This is work we did with Ruth Lay, tracking uh, one, one child over the first two and a half years of life. And so we're only going to be looking at his gut community. Um, he was delivered vaginally, and you can see that his initial, community, uh, his, his initial um, fecal sample is up there in the vaginal region, um, with perhaps a little skin contribution as well. And so the question is, how long does it take him to move through this landscape towards the adult fecal community over two and a half years? How complete is that progression uh, down towards the bottom? And is it smooth or is it, uh, is it, um, is it chaotic? 
So what you can see is some weeks he changes a little bit, whereas other weeks he changes a lot. And remember what matters on these plots is the distance from one point to another. So uh, it really is true that one week to the next, uh, your kid can look like a completely different person, at least when you compare uh, the distances between these points to the distances between healthy adults and the Human Microbiome Project, which are those points in brown at the bottom. Now coming up here is something fascinating. So he gets antibiotics for an ear infection. You see that tremendous regression of the microbiome and then a recovery. That went by pretty fast, so I'm just going to rewind it for you and play it again. Uh, so what you can see is on administration of oral amoxicillin for an ear infection, you see this tremendous regression of the gut microbiome and doing months of normal development, followed in this case by rapid recovery. And then by the time he gets to two and a half years, he's more or less in the healthy adult distribution. Um, but we just don't know in general uh, what the effects of antibiotics are on the rest of the body in the, in the sites that aren't targeted and whether those early life changes can have profound and lasting effects. There's some evidence in both humans and experimental uh, animal models that early life antibiotics in the first six months can lead, to, uh, can lead to increased rates of obesity. But we don't know about the impact on the skin, uh, on the mouth and on other sites in the body yet. Um, we can also do this sort of thing cross-culturally. So here, um, in, in work with Jeff Gordon, we show that an African population in red, uh, South American population in green, and in the US population in blue, uh, the gut communities converged on one another over the first three years of life. However, uh, where they wound up uh, in, in the three populations was very different. So the rate of approach to the adult state is very similar cross-culturally, um, but the final state where you end up can be very different. And you can see the Western population in that right-hand panel uh, in, in, in blue is very different from the two non-Western populations. And in that respect, uh, it's important to remember that even large-scale projects like the Human Microbiome Project have largely only looked at healthy Western adults. And as soon as you start to go into children and as soon as you start to go into non-Western populations, you see very different things. And this is true not just in the gut, but in every site in the body. So, for example, this is what we did with Maria Gloria Dominguez uh, looking, at, uh, looking at previously uncontacted Yanomami in South America. And what you, can see, um, what you can see is that the Yanomami population is more diverse in the skin, so that's that left panel, uh, than the U.S. population. And then the microbes that they have on the skin are completely different. So those green points separate completely from the yellow points of the U.S. population. So this might lead you to wonder, uh, well, we've seen that the skin can vary cross-culturally, but how does it vary over the human body? And this is what we've been doing with Peter Durrestein uh, here at UCSD in, in the Skaggs School of Pharmacy. And, um, of course, the skin is just so fascinating. It's this interface between ourselves and the physical environment that we're in contact with. So, um, so, so Peter was interested in how microbes vary over the skin, so he recruited two subjects, uh, one of which was him, and um, sampled the skin at 500 sites over the body, and then uh, analyzed each of those sites using two kinds of mass spectrometry, and we sequenced the DNA of the bacteria to give a readout of where they are all over the body. And uh, one thing that was fascinating is that, although my, uh, is that although the microbes can differentiate the two subjects from one another, they're not nearly as distinct subject to subject as the metabolites are. So you can see that the metabolites form these two completely separate clouds, uh, one for the male uh, in blue and one for the female in red. And so the metabolites, we can track down where they are on the body, and some of them are broadly distributed all over the body. Some are localized to the armpit or to the groin or to the toenails uh, or other particular sites. And we can do the same kind of thing for the microbes. So, for example, Staphylococcus is mostly in the moist regions like you'd expect, so the nose and the feet. Propionobacterium more on the head and shoulders. And Carinobacterium uh, broadly, over, um, uh, broadly over the body. 
Um, so one, one thing that was really fascinating about this was uh, when, we, uh, when we built these molecular networks um, to try to figure out how the chemicals related to one another, what we could see is that most of the chemicals that we found on human skin did not come from pure bacterial cultures or from human skin cell cultures, but instead came from beauty products. And in fact, 90% of the chemicals that we identified on skin in the study came from sunscreen and moisturizer and shampoo and other things that our subjects applied to their bodies. So that's just fascinating, right? The 90% of the identifiable chemicals on your body probably come from consumer products that you apply. So to address this problem, um, uh, I've been working with the Hadza uh, in, in, in uh, Tanzania together with uh, Jeff Leach uh, through the Human Food Project. And, um, and, and so uh, these are people who have not been exposed to any of these products at all. And uh, essentially, um, essentially what we've been doing is, uh, is, is, um, is sampling uh, a wide range of things there, including the gut, the skin, uh, the various dwellings and so forth on, uh, on, on different projects. And so what you, what you can see is that the, uh, the, the Hadza, uh, shown here in yellow, have very different metabolic communities from the Westerners, um, even when we were out at the field site. So uh, we're at the same location, but you see there's very different skin metabolite profiles. And uh, what, what you can see is of the metabolites um, uh, that, that, we, uh, that we saw, only about 25% of what was identified is shared by the Hadza skin and the skin of Westerners. Um, you can also see that the Hadza skin is much closer to the environmental samples, mostly water samples, that we collected on site in green there. Um, and they're also, they also have a fairly large contribution from honey, which can make up a lot of their calories in the dry season, which is when we were doing the sampling. And uh, we can also see a number of plants that are contributing to the Hadza uh, and, and not to the Western metabolites. And so these are things like baobabs and other, um, uh, and, and other uh, major, major sources of food uh, that we can track down uh, the specific metabolic links between the food and the person. Um, so this, this is a kind of molecular network um, where essentially you can think of this as basically being like constellations of the different metabolites where you connect up the ones that are related to each other and match them up to different kinds of environmental samples. And so what we can do with this is we can identify uh, clusters that are specific to particular niches. Um, so, for example, uh, we can see plant flavonoids, uh, we can see, uh, we, we can see uh, monosterate, uh, which is more on the healthcare uh, products in the U.S. population. And we can zoom in and, for example, look at the flavonoids and uh, how, how, they, um, how they're similar, uh, uh, how, how the profiles are somewhat uh, similar, but, um, but then with the subtle differences between the U.S. and the Hadza individuals in the, in the study. Um, and then similarly, we can do this sort of thing with sterols, uh, which again are mostly coming from plant metabolites uh, and from sucrose from the beehive, uh, which, which is found predominantly in the Hadza. Um, so we can also do this sort of thing uh, looking at the bacteria, and uh, what, uh, what, what I'm doing here is just colouring it by body site. So for example, the green is stool, um, the, uh, the pink is skin, and you can see this tremendous heterogeneity in the skin. And uh, we, we, also, we also got some samples through collaborators at the Yerkes Primate Centre, and uh, I'm just going to make some of the balls bigger uh, for the chimpanzees. Those of you familiar with chimpanzee anatomy will understand why. And, um, uh, and so what, what you can see is that the fecal samples uh, for the chimps are distinct from the fecal samples from the humans. And then correspondingly, the few, the few skin samples we have from one chimpanzee individual, uh, those large pink balls, are substantially distinct from the skin samples from any of the humans, including the Hadza. And then within the human population, what you can see here, uh, basically the grey uh, samples of skin, uh, are samples from Westerners, and uh, the coloured balls are, are from Hadza from, from different camps. And you can see that, again, uh, like the South American Yanomami group I showed you before, 
the Hadza skin samples are distinct from what we see in Westerners. So we're just starting to uncover uh, the links between microbiology and different lifestyles. I, I should point out that, uh, that, that most of these, uh, most of this, uh, most of this data for the Hadza and for the chimpanzees was assembled over the past week, uh, and, and many of these figures we made uh, last night or, or this morning. So this is still very preliminary data. We're still trying to fully understand the results. Um, so anyway, one thing that's exciting about matching up the metabolite uh, and, the, um, and the bacterial profiles is we can get an idea of what bacteria are doing what functions. So if I show you something like Propionobacterium, which is mostly on the head and shoulders, and then, uh, sorry, most, mostly on the head and shoulders, and then something like oleic acid, which is on the head and on the hands, you can see, you can see in the third figure that uh, oxidized oleic acid, is a, which is a metabolic product of oleic acid, is on the head where you see Propionobacterium, but not on the hands where you don't see it. And then similarly with palmitic acid, we can see, uh, we can see it getting degraded to monoolein, monopalmitin, uh, only where propionobacterium is. So what we can do then is we can, we can test that hypothesis by taking the bacteria, cultured off skin, um, and then uh, incubating it with a precursor and just verifying that, uh, that that particular bacterium in the lab can do the chemical reaction that we attribute to it. Um, okay, so I'm just going to talk very briefly about how we exchange our skin microbes with our environment. And uh, for, example, uh, for example, we can match up uh, the keys on your computer keyboard to the tips of your fingers and the palm of your hand with your computer mouse with up to 95% accuracy based on the microbes you share. Uh, so this came out in the scientific journal PNES a few years ago. Here I'm just showing you the skin uh, of the fingertips and the keyboard keys clustering together by subject for three different people. But more importantly, it was on the TV show CSI Miami, so you really know it's true. Uh, in any case, we can use this kind of mapping technique to look at sources of pathogens in the kitchen, uh, where you can see in that top panel that you're leaving your, your skin communities primarily on, on the door handles and the trash can and other things that you touch. We can do the same kind of thing in bathrooms. So here you can see that the skin's mostly on the door handles and the toilet seats. Uh, the stool's fortunately mostly confined to the bathroom. Then there's a big signal from soil on the floor and intriguingly also on the flush handle um, where apparently a lot of people were using their feet to flush. And coming from, <laughs> coming from New Zealand, I had never heard of this cultural practice, but apparently it's fairly common in the U.S., uh, we can also do the same sort of thing in homes. So this is some work we did with Jack Gilbert, looking at what happens when you move into a new house. And you can imagine some different scenarios. So for example, you might stay the same and the house might stay the same. Uh, you might unpack your microbes all over the house with the rest of your belongings. Uh, maybe the house instead contributes microbes to you. Uh, or finally, maybe you and the house blend into a new community state. Uh, one thing we saw is that the house microbes were very highly correlated with the human microbes from the same dwelling. Um, there was one case where there were two lodges, and a, uh, sorry, where there was a couple and a lodger, and to everyone's immense relief, the two, the two people in the couple were more similar to one another in their microbial community than either was to the lodger, and uh, so, we didn't, uh, so there was no uh, difficult explaining to do. But um, one, one thing we can do is we can track the individual contribution to different, uh, to different surfaces. So here what we're looking at is each individual and each dog's contribution to different surfaces, like the bathroom doorknob, the bedroom floor, and so on. You can see that black line. Uh, that's where person one went away on a trip, and you can see their particular contribution to all of these surfaces disappearing uh, during that period where, when they're away. So we can even tell uh, who's inhabiting a particular space uh, by the microbes that they're leaving behind. Um, more seriously, we can apply this sort of thing in the hospital environment to look at hospital-acquired infections. And um, we can also apply these questions to really, um, these techniques to really compelling questions in animal health. 
so, for example, in the Earth Microbiome Project, uh, we've been looking at a huge number of different microbial samples, so over uh, 30,000 samples provided mem by members of the community. And, uh, for example, looking at, uh, looking at Komodo dragons, so this is me swabbing a baby uh, Komodo dragon at the Denver Zoo uh, called Bintang, um, what we can see is that each Komodo dragon in their enclosure uh, shares a whole lot of microbes with the particular enclosure it's in, just like we do as humans with the enclosures in which we capture ourselves. Um, but what's fascinating is that uh, the microbial communities of the captive Komodo dragon soil don't resemble at all the communities that we see in soil in the wild. So you see these two completely distinct clouds of points. And uh, what, what's interesting is that the degree of sharing is pretty similar to the degree of sharing we see between humans and pets in the same houses, uh, but not the degree of sharing that we see with wild amphibians in their environment, where a constant input of microbes seems to be really important for health. Speaking of amphibian health, one thing that's really important is this fungal uh, disease called, um, uh, uh, called BD, which is leading to amphibian declines worldwide. And uh, one thing that's fascinating, and this is work with Val McKenzie at Boulder, uh, is that we can look at a whole lot of different amphibians and actually, um, and actually put them along this axis of resistance from the least resistant to the most resistant to BD based on the skin microbial community. And then the really cool part is, like Rich showed you in humans, we can actually transfer the microbes from, 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 from one frog to another and confer resistance to the skin fungus. And so this idea of microbial transplants is turning out to be incredibly compelling. So I'll just wrap, wrap up very briefly by, uh, by mentioning that you can put yourself on these kinds of microbial maps now through this project called American Gut, but we'll also accept skin and other samples. And um, not everyone wants to know what's in there. Uh, these are middle schoolers reacting to the idea we're going to use robots and lasers to look at their poop. Um, but, uh, but just to reorient you on the map, in cases like Clostridium difficile, uh, what you can see is this extreme dysbiotic microbial community if you have this profound form of diarrhea where you're going to the bathroom many times a day. I just, want to, I just want to show you what happens when you do ecosystem restoration, where you have one donor who's down in the healthy state there and transmit that to four patients. Um, so this is with Mike Sadowski and Alex Kruitz at the University of Minnesota. And what you can see is that on transmission of that microbiome from the uh, healthy donor to the four, uh, to four of these patients, um, and each frame of this is just going to be one day in the life of the microbiome, uh, what you can see is essentially immediately they go from the unhealthy state into the healthy state, and then they stay there. And so the prospects to do this kind of thing, um, and this is coupled to clinical remission of their symptoms within a day or two, uh, the, the ability to do this sort of thing in all body habitats, whether it's the gut or the skin or elsewhere, is an incredibly compelling area uh, of medicine today, given the large number of diseases that we now know are linked to the microbiome. But what we really have to do is develop not just these microbial maps, but a kind of microbial GPS that tells you uh, not just where are you right now, but where do you want to go in terms of your microbiome, and what do you need to do step by step in order to get there. We need to develop this and make it so easy to use that even our children can use it. So you can imagine a kind of smart toilet that's going to do an analysis of your microbes and your metabolites. It's going to deliver it to your smartphone, which, let's face it, I bet you're using in there anyway, and um, it's going to tell you uh, and it's going to tell you whether you're going in a good direction or a bad direction, and maybe what specifically you need to do in order to improve the health of any of your microbiomes, whether it's your gut or your skin. So with that, I'll briefly thank again the many people who contributed to the specific work I showed you, uh, the large number uh, of uh, amazing people I've had working with me in my lab, uh, currently and formally, and uh, finally, thanks for your attention.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.